0: Well, let's, let's, uh, let's dive right into it. So yeah, welcome to another episode of uh, Young Professionals and Energy Podcast. My name is Mark Heinemann, and I'm uh, sitting in a rental car in Hobbs, New Mexico right now, which is it's pretty exciting. But you know, you got you to gotta work wherever you are. So I've got my co-host, uh, Carolyn Luca. Carolyn, how are you doing today?
1: Great. Excellent. Glad to be on.
0: All right. And then we've got our guest today is Mike Umbro, or Mike you prefer Mike or Michael?
2: Mike is good. You know, Mike's usually good. Michael's reserved for my mom or close oh. relatives at this no, on, point. <laughs> on
0: your website, you've got uh, you've got Michael. So, Do
2: I have Michael? Okay. Well, Michael. I want everybody to treat me like my mom does, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it looks like, you know, you, you went to school at Pepperdine and then have two masters or working on perhaps a second master. Um, industry or energy industry uh investor worked kind of in, in the investment community and uh starting kind of your own oil bus- oil business as far as i can tell so but yeah um, i i appreciate you taking the time to to interview with us today i I'd, I'd like to start hopefully by just uh kind of walking through your background um tell t- tell us about you know i probably from school on what what's sure. your career
2: yeah. okay yeah yeah i um i'm born and raised in san diego so it's uh fairly atypical for oil and gas professionals to be from San Diego. But I, uh, I studied economics at Pepperdine University and then did a, I guess I from there, I kind of went the route of finance and started at Morgan Stanley and was looking at being a, an investment banking professional with kind of a bigger uh, shop. And um, I didn't really like that route. Um, it just wasn't for me. So I left and went to a small buy side M&A firm called Bainbridge here in La Jolla, California, San Diego. And uh, my first job was to basically dial for production. So we had a management team in Houston. I was the new analyst. I was tasked with finding oil production. And so I basically uh, learned the lingo, cold calling the good old boy network in Texas and New Mexico and Kansas, basically mid-continent, wherever we could source production. And this was in 2007, 2008, so uh, the financial crisis hit, and we weren't successful in raising money, so I said, well, why am I, why am I sourcing production when we don't have anything to buy this production with? And I started FieldView, which I still run now as kind of a boutique buy-side advisory, although I don't do much uh, deal sourcing. These days, I, I am just focused on our development, uh, but I still kind of keep my shingle out there as field view. So that's kind of, that's kind of in a nutshell, how I got into the industry and in, in cold calling for production.
1: <laughs> From La Jolla, California. From La
2: Jolla, California, exactly.
0: Nice. That That's that's really, really interesting. Uh, the, the the boutique um, investment shop, so I've... Uh, advising shop. Was that just kind of consulting guys on deals, and you uh, you talked to a lot of people about production? Had kind well, of a feel. Tell, <laughs> tell us a little more about. That.
2: I mean, yeah. To be perfectly transparent, it was learn as you go, learn on the fly, yeah. because <laughs> I had limited experience, and I said, okay, well, I've got to, you know, I know the model. I've got to find, you know, good reserves, drilling upside, private equity type deal. Um, and I basically did that. So I started Fieldview, and I, I took that same model and I said, why well, I, I like talking to people, I'm going to go continue to source deals. And, um, you know, then I found a different private equity, you know, sponsor and found a different management team and basically kind of put the ingredients of the cake together on my own and partnered a team with an asset in the Eagleford at the time in
0: 2012, 2012 would have been good timing to
2: have. Yeah, it was good timing. It was, it was great timing. And you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit, but that's what led me to my first, you know, postgraduate degree at university of Tulsa. I realized in 14, um, that was really cool to put a deal together kind of on my own, but I wanted to be an operator. I don't, really enjoy the brokering side of things, um, especially, you know, kind of in the private equity world. And in my position, you're kind of the big fee that everybody wants to eliminate from the transaction. So it's not a very comfortable space uh, unless you want to be that deal shop that's generating, you know, two, three, four big deals a year. And that's kind of your model. Um, So I went back and studied energy business at University of Tulsa, and that was a great experience, and you know, really opened my eyes to, you know, really what it took to uh, potentially operate an asset, and um, finished that in 16, and then we kind of had a couple of hiccups in the industry in in those 16 to 18 time frame. But fortunately, I met my partners that I'm working with now, and uh, they brought me in on a on a deal that they were trying to fund, and so I said, well you know, I can raise the money and you can pay me a fee, which I knew they didn't have the money to pay me at the time, or you can (laughs) cut me in on the deal and I can be your partner. And so that's how, that's kind of how it came to be with me. And now I'm, you know, technically our CFO at Premier Resource Management, but um, now we have an asset out on the west side of Kern County, uh, about an hour's drive northwest of Bakersfield and a little bit closer coming south from Paso Robles. So. It's not bad if you can stay in wine country and then <laughs> go to the field.
0: <laughs> my uh, my dad was a geologist in the 70s and 80s. Well, he's still a geologist. He's still still with us. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he wildcatted in kind of mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s and brokered deals and eventually uh, came to the same conclusion as you that yeah owning your own stuff was a lot easier. Absolutely. So, but yeah, Caroline, sure. the private equity side. So I'm curious about Carolyn's perspective on uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think operations is really tough actually. Um I prefer to be on the other side and uh you guys do such a great job at operating.
0: Yeah,
2: it's 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 challenging. I mean, it's been very eye-opening the just especially in California. It's a lot of a lot of regulatory hurdles and uh just slow grind. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so tell us about California and how you've managed to live in California this entire time.
2: I know. It's kind of funny because I've been working from home since like 08 when all this craziness started. So my typical schedule was if it it was kind of Texas-oriented, I'd be flying to Houston or Midland. Um, If it was California, I'd be driving to Bakersfield, which I still do weekly. Um, So it's just been... um, it's been a lot of learning, but I kind of, I have a good buddy that owns a directional company in Bakersfield. And he said, Hey, you know, just focus on California and kind of become the expert locally. And I've really tried to take that to heart. And it's, um, it takes a while to like get that momentum in a state like California. But (laughs) I feel like once you do, then you've got um all those characteristics that everybody that's operating is looking for. You've got, you know, long live reserves, you've got a lot of drilling upside. I mean Kern County's got 1.8 billion barrels proved reserves. So if it was a state, it'd be number seven in the country. So you've got a lot of opportunity in a in a in a nice little area that's close to home. So so I love it. I love being here.
1: And good weather.
2: In good weather. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So that's that's Premier Resources, I guess. Can you chat a little bit about Premier and kind yeah. of what what all you guys have going, size of the organization, what kind of challenges you guys are facing? facing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're totally lean. It's myself, uh, kind of on the finance and investor relations side, we'll call it. And uh, our CEO, a guy named Jim Leiterhaus, he was 37 years at Chevron, uh, thermal enhanced oil recovery guru he's all about reservoir simulation and just so technically savvy and and a kern county resident so he's a local local person and just been wonderful to work with and then our our other partner there's three of us a guy named Lonnie Curley is a a petroleum engineer so we've got our reservoir engineer our petroleum engineer myself uh, we outsource geology right now. Um, we're going through the permitting process. Uh, so for us, what that looks like is is going for a percolation pond for produced water initially while we are permitting our UIC permit for steam injection. So our main reservoir, our main target is a thermal EOR uh, steam flood. And our secondary target that we're looking at is uh, slightly deeper, although we're talking like Sub 2000 feet in our play. So everything's pretty shallow. Uh, but we're going yeah, <laughs> <deep, deep stuff. laughs> to um, <laughs> do a couple of, yeah, deep, deep stuff. The deep stuff at 1500 feet. But we're going to do a couple of three laterals that we're planning to drill here uh, that won't require steam. So the idea is we can get a little bit of cash flow out of those wells while we're permitting the UIC process, which in California can be. Uh, as little as a year, as long as
0: three to you know, indefinite. And everything is opportunity to to do business in a regulatory environment that's uncertain. I mean, that was one of the great strengths of America was you right. could go out and if you had you know the uh, creativity or the financing or whatever to go out and build a business, then you could do it. And you know some some good businesses, and bad businesses formed out of that. But you know a lot of people appreciated. Operating in America because of the regulatory certainty and that's right. one of the years that I've got is that the change in Regulations it's really, really makes it really difficult on business thinking about the investment side of your guys project um, Or really some of the financial metrics if you want to share them. I mean what, what, is this, what does this look like? I mean you guys put a dollar into the business when when do you get the dollar back you, you don't have to disclose you know your whole business structure you know, plan, but I, I I try and put this in perspective often for folks and I just want to compare your project, say, to a solar facility. Right? Right. And I for me I say it all the time, you know, we can go and spend ten million dollars on oil and gas. Well, we're gonna get our get our money back in ten months and then everything after that's gravy and right. we can use those to reinvest in the business. Versus you could spend ten million bucks on a solar farm and you might get your money back in twenty years.
2: Right. Right, right. So, so right. How, how we've looked at this, yeah, so how we've looked at it, um, initially, we before I was involved, the partners were looking at raising private equity in Houston, and they went back and forth and, and spoke to some pretty well-known, you know, anybody would know these private equity shops, very well-known firms, and of course, they wanted them to go out and find an asset with existing production, scale something up, take their skill sets to a regulatory friendly environment, and so kind of it was kind of a dead dead end for them because they wanted to be in Kern County. So what we've done um, at a high level, the, the first thing we're looking at when we're sourcing our assets and how we did it with our location was to look for something that was heavy oil with steam flood potential away from the coast, because you don't want to be in Santa Barbara, you don't want to be in LA, in Kern County where where you have some support from from the community. And then we wanted to take it from there and say, okay, how do we raise the money to basically get a steam pilot off the ground? So for that, we needed three to five million dollars. And then from there, scale it to to more of, a a, you know, drill some patterns and put some injectors in and kind of scale the model on on the steam uh, cyclic steam side before you really pump a lot of money into it. So we looked at it and said we'd need about three to five million dollars to get started. And then we would, after we get some initial results, we would go back out to you know hedge fund type money or private equity type money to kind of get some some finance uh, in place for the project development. Um, Of course, that's how it was all planned and everything changes when you actually start start going. But what we did is we did raise three million dollars from three individuals. We wanted to work only initially with strategic investors. So uh, one of our investors owns a fairly big uh, pipe company in the industry. Uh, One was a former boss of Jim's at Chevron and one is a client of mine uh, that uh, we do a lot of environmental work together um on the consulting side that is is another project of mine but so we brought in three people that really knew the business and uh raise money from them to get us uh to a point where we can drill our first five wells and we're right in the middle of that process right now Um, so what it would look like from a cash flow perspective are two vertical wells that will uh, penetrate our target reservoir and uh, tag the lower zone will be right around 300,000 to drill and complete. So very easy to get that uh, that accomplished today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very cheap and affordable. Um, but without steam, they might only produce three, five, 10 barrels of oil a day. So it's, it's, they'll do that for 30, 40 years in Kern County, but that's obviously (laughs) not the target. Um, and then our three laterals we're looking at could each come on at, in, in the order of like three to 500 barrels a day. So now we're kind of getting excited where we, we can say, okay, we, we can drill these, these two verticals, get some structure control and then drill the three laterals and actually, you know, maybe have 500 to a thousand barrels a day of, of pretty good production. Um, so that's kind of, um, the goal for us right now, and if we can do that, we feel confident that we can finance our own drilling program.
0: And are the laterals going to be in the same target then? Yeah, they're all in a in a in a zone
2: at 1,500 feet in the same target. Uh, mm-hmm. We do have uh, some resources in three other zones, but probably you know save those for down the road.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And so will you try and steam flood for the laterals, too? Uh, they could be enhanced. So our our,
2: our target reservoir is like a 16-gravity crude, so obviously we need the steam. Um, yeah. Our laterals are going to be somewhere around like a 24-gravity crude, so it might be enhanced by steam, but it's not totally necessary. Um, and I'm not an engineer, so... If we get too far technical, <laughs> I don't know. How beneficial yeah, it be. I, I
0: don't know. I, I I am an engineer, so it's easy for me to be like, "Ooh, tell me more."
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. I'm, I'm an trying. engineer too and I do very little engineering, so I'm I feel you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not bashful, so I I'll try <laughs> if I don't know the answer.
1: <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the um investor side. From your experience, have you seen investor appetite wane in the energy sector? And do you think that's going to change with its recent performance in the S&P?
2: Yeah, I I definitely saw, like broadly speaking, I saw a lot of private equity firms almost like try to rebrand their web pages and like, oh, you're <laughs> now an infrastructure fund or you're now an alternative energy fund and you know, then you look at all their holdings and 90% of it's still oil and gas because they're really <laughs> So I've definitely noticed that. I'm sure you guys have noticed that too. Yeah, I mean, I I I do see um like I said, I do see folks in Texas and Houston that are traditional, you know, oil and gas shops that are branching out, which is, I think it's nice to see, but I think with the price recovery, I guess I would assume they've got to be tempted to just go back to what they know best and, and, um, maybe continue the search efforts on alternative projects, but oil and gas looks pretty good right now to me anyway. I'm, I i do not know how you guys feel about it, but What do you, what do you guys think?
1: Um, well, uh, maybe this will come out of the podcast, but, uh, I like to call the greenwashing BSG.
2: I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's
0: I, I want, I want a better, safer world. And, uh, yeah, I think more energy development with more energy dense fuels is a better mission than, uh, reducing emissions all the time you know so
2: i guess Uh, related on that note to california like a good example is like us we're a startup operation we we took over the lease it had you know six wells from the last operator which was kind of a promoter but you know we're we're addressing the violations from their past you know nonsense and fixing up the lease in this time period but I feel like the way things are um, with the BSG or ESG, whatever we want to call it, especially in California, is it really the way it's being proposed now, I feel like really stifles innovation. So like for us to permit our, our UIC, we're in known oil land we're between you know we're north Bell Ridge, south lost hills we're in oil country we're nowhere near houses we're nowhere near uh potable water we we're like 20 miles from the closest water well there's really no water for us to foul but the way the state uh pushes some of these policies y- there's no incentive to innovate so it, they just want to shut down the industry so like for us we could put a megawatt of solar out there and reduce our you know our dependency on the grid for our our steam generators yeah. we can
0: it's pretty can, sunny right like i mean it's pretty sunny like we can yeah. we could totally <laughs> incorporate that so, but uh, you're a finance guy why, why don't you guys do that
2: Well, I've talked to people, I've talked to, you know, the best money is other people's money, right? So I've talked to the solar (laughs) finance people, they're like, oh, we could finance a megawatt of solar out there and, you know, make it work with your economics. I'm like, hey, if you guys know how, I call it the regulatory casino, like if you know how the low carbon fuel standard credits can flow down to us at our field in California, it's flat, it's sunny, like, let's put it out there. Um, yeah. And there's a lot you're of people that so, do you're that.
0: like, we, we just don't have, we're not going to spend our dollars with our expected returns on it. Yeah.
2: And our investors and want us our to Our project. And, and, yeah. We, yeah. Exactly. We got to prove reserves because that, I mean, we got to get bankable. So our focus is right. like, we got to get off the ground. But it's not impossible to integrate these known technologies if the regulatory climate is at least collaborative with you and not just trying to shut you down.
1: Yeah, I think right now it's so polarizing. You're one side or the other side and there's no in between. Um, One of the things that we've tried to do with YP Denver is try to bring people from solar and wind into the group and just start that conversation. And I think that's so important because we're going to be around for a long time. So let's work together.
2: Are they willing to like come hang out
0: with you or are they like, I don't know. We've got several of them on the board. Yeah. Oh good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The next CEO from a solar company, rooftop solar company, on the board that's helping out awesome. organize events. And that that was really a goal of ours was okay, these people exist, this industry exists. Why aren't we talking to each other? Right. right. That's like go and have conversations and drink beers and BS about it. Exactly. Our, our ultimate exactly. goal is, hey, let's find the best solution for humanity because right. surely like energy is a feedstock for the rest of the economy. If we can right. develop it cheap, as cheap as possible and as safe as possible, that filters downstream and will make everyone's lives better.
2: Totally, totally. I think that's great, and that's. I mean, that's kind of the definition of stakeholder engagement. I mean, bringing everybody to the same table and understanding how can we best approach this. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that that happens in California, but I'm not. Uh, crossing, holding my breath. I'm not holding my breath. I guess that's the <laughs> right way to say it. So I'd
1: love to hear about your most memorable encounter with someone when you said, I work in oil and gas.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I went, I I just finished a degree at the Duke Nicholas School of the Environment, and that was kind of the conversation, not in a negative way, but I, I went to the, the Nicholas School to study environmental management, and I wanted to stretch myself out of the industry echo chamber and understand what are the environmental concerns from someone that's outside the industry. And, you know, one of the first questions I got by by, by one of our leadership mentors was why are you in the program? And I'm like, I don't know. What kind of <laughs> question is that? Like, don't you want me in this program? Like, don't you want me to come learn from the environmental Leaders of this of this academic institution and like, really,
0: guys, <laughs> get oil out of the ground you're like you're <laughs> well, you might know, as do it right like yeah. <laughs> I'm like we all flew here I mean
2: we all had to get here somehow, so you know we should we should kind of all and and it was great it was I learned so much uh being stretched that way, and but I do feel like we need to have those uncomfortable. Uh, introductions of, of like, yeah, I'm in oil and gas. Oh, yeah, I'm in Greenpeace or whatever you are, you know. And and I'm, I'm always kind of like, well, it, why are politics off limits? Because these things are politically charged. So you kind of have to be able to have a balanced discussion politically, environmentally, natural resources all kind of have to be out on the table and not, um,
0: you know, not off limits. I love it. So the the program at Duke. So you were doing Master of Environmental Management. I mean, are, are you still involved in that program?
2: I finished in. I graduated in May. Okay. And yeah, we still WhatsApp oh, with our. Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was a fast two years. Um, but I, yeah, I it really. I think the biggest thing that that program did it taught me how to research really and truly, and taught me how to how to stretch my beliefs into not thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to develop this and it's going to be good for people. And that's that we need it. Um, but no, it, it, it was a really good learning experience to learn how to, cr- you know, critically look at policy. And, and of course in California, there's a lot of that. And then identify, you know, how I fit into that in a sustainable long-term way and, you know, feel good about what you're doing for work.
0: <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of the experience for me. So you interface with people there. You you've been very active on LinkedIn, which is how I yeah. found you. I appreciate all of your content, and you you yeah. try and uh, I'll say call attention to a lot of things that sound very obvious when you just say them out loud, but that it, it's also from the I'll say opposite policy is obvious that people aren't thinking about it and aren't thinking critically mm-hmm. about the full implications of mm-hmm. energy policy. So right right. Um, I'd like to try and dive into that a little bit more. Uh, first, talk about kind of the research that you do for calling attention to these points. Um, right. And second, talk about kind of, have you seen any be most effective? Are we actively changing minds or are we just talking to an echo chamber?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I feel I'm like it's... A, that, but, to yeah. answer the second one briefly, I think, I feel like I'm in an echo chamber, especially LinkedIn. Like, I started posting things because I just thought to myself, well... I'm reading all this stuff, and it bothers me, so maybe it bothers somebody else, and I'll just put it out there. Um, I, I, hope, I hope to be able to cross over into other people's realms of thinking and, and, and more on the, you know, the side of just building bridges and, and making things better. But for me, it really came down to a fight to survive in what you do for a living. And in, in California, in particular, it's like okay, California is the number one consumer of gasoline, the number one consumer of jet fuel, the number two consumer of petroleum products as a as a state among all the states. So now, we, if you just accept that and say okay, let's look at demand. Thirty seven of the past thirty eight years, California has consumed more than six hundred million barrels of oil. A year, the only outlier to that to, was COVID. That's the only outlier was last year where we dropped to 485 million barrels of oil consumed, and we still, I mean, that's still with the some of the harshest lockdowns in the country. You basically so shut about, the state down.
0: So that's about one and a half to two million barrels a day. Yes. Did I, yeah. did I do my, so that's yeah, like one percent, one to two percent of global consumption is in the state of California. Right. A day. Yeah. A day. Yeah. <laughs> and and, yeah. and you you can lock
2: it down and it's still a lot. And, and even right. when you lock it down, the second step we look at as operators, you know, as Governor Newsom says, hey, we want to manage the phase out of oil production by 2045. Well, fine. Even if you want to do that, give me the next 24 years to operate my asset. But anyway, you, you look at that and you say, OK, where is it coming from? And why is it coming from these locations so 60 to 70 percent of that demand is being met by opec sources overseas mainly ecuador iraq and saudi arabia and then um, alaska uh, of course it has some some crude imports to the state Uh, but as recently as 1990 it's something like 97% of the mix was provided by California and Alaska. And fast forward 35 years and now it's the, it's trending towards the opposite. And so number one, I'm sitting here wondering in a, in a comprehensive sustainable policy framework, why would you not first say let's end crude imports? We know it's behind rail or, tied with rail whatever as the most risky way to move product and uh very carbon intensive not to mention the pollution from sox and NOx particulate matter it's the ports in in California are the source of basically <laughs> the majority of our pollution in the LA basin and that's widely reported that's not just me as an advocate so what we're saying as an industry here is why is the policy being framed as we need to stop local production in favor of imports. And then secondly, the thing that I really am starting to look at now is looking at the letter of the legislation. So as we look at green new deals nationally, we, we essentially have similar in the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006 in California, which was signed by Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and Mayor Gavin Newsom in San Francisco together in 2006 with the objective of bringing emissions levels in California down to 1990 uh, or uh, by 2020. And that was met. And now we want to get at 80% of 1990 levels by 2020. 2050 or 2030, whatever it is, we're taking it a step further. But in taking it the step further, we're not, we're only counting the carbon and the emissions in our state. So that is going down. But but meanwhile, if you go to IEA's data and look at Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Ecuador, where we're getting the oil, all of their emissions since 1990 are up by like 150 to 220 percent. So it's the classic definition of leakage, and we're that's our policy framework. And I don't, I don't know how that changes unless both sides call attention to the fact that it's flawed, and nobody ever wants to admit they're wrong. And so that's, sorry, that was kind of long-winded no, no, answer. But, no,
1: that's great. I, I think it's mind-blowing, right? It's we're just outsourcing this problem so that we don't see it. But right. it's still happening and it's still going to affect us in the long term. And and really, the answer is just use less stuff.
2: Right. Exactly. Use less mm-hmm. stuff and buy local. It's like your produce. Like, <laughs> if you <laughs> buy it local, it's the most sustainable way. It's no different. Yeah.
0: I've, I've got ideas about other solutions, but... We'll, we'll, uh, what are <laughs> they? <laughs> What's one of them? I think we should be using more energy. But producing it differently. So, uh, particularly, we should be using as many energy dense fuels as we possibly can. Meaning, if we can build more nuclear power plants throughout the world, then it's a really, We're really. Shut
2: them down, though. Oh, man. But why? Right? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I agree. It makes yeah. no sense.
0: I, I think that I worry that the nuclear industry has regulated itself, speaking of regulation, regulated itself out of business. Yeah. And it it's really tragic actually Um,
2: i think so i think yeah we have san onofre just you know half hour north of me that shut down um diablo canyon's coming in 2025 that's another 10 percent of base load off an an already unstable californian grid but i agree (laughs) with you completely
1: i'd be buying a backup generator right now
2: my, <laughs> my mom, but obviously she shops at Costco a lot. Uh, all moms shop at Costco. Right. But she's yeah. like, she's like, Oh, I'm looking at this tri fuel backup generator. I'm like, get it. And she, yeah, I'm like, do it. I mean, we live on the same street. So I live five doors down from my parents, which is oh, kind of funny. But I'm like, we need one. This is great because we only need one. Because if our power goes out, we can just go to whoever's house
0: we want. How, how is this reality that it's it's 2021 and like educated, intelligent people that are not? I imagine. I don't know. I don't know you very well, Mike, but I, I imagine you're not like a conspiracy theorist or like yeah. you know, but trying to put things in your basement. But like, there's a real, legitimate threat that you guys are gonna have brownouts, blackouts, and lose power and need a generator. Like totally. I, and
1: you just go to your friend's house with a generator and drink right. beer
0: exactly I mean, it's it's really it's like this atlas shrug dystopia i love
1: right
2: exactly formed. what a great comparison yeah for sure uh-huh. i just i just started i pulled out my road to serfdom book by <laughs> fa hayek recently <laughs> like let me freshen up on what we're going through here
0: <laughs> so do you think that uh, this is one of the questions that i i asked you um that climate alarmism uh or you know, the perception of climate change being dangerous to society is more dangerous than climate change is itself? And I don't know if you've had any good data or I haven't looked into that at all.
2: I don't have a lot of good data. I was thinking about that because it's a great question, and um, I think there's a few people that are like Bjorn Lomborg, who's in oh, yeah. Wall Street Journal sure. every Thursday now, and he's kind of looking yeah. at that you know, cold desk. His, his work's deaths. phenomenal. It is. Yeah. It is. And I think that's the kind of data that needs to get out, um, to people. But I do think my wife asked me a lot of these kind of questions cause she's not in the in- industry and, and she's, you know, kind of a surfer hippie growing up in San Diego and like, what, what you know, kind of grappling with what I do and understanding it. But, you know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, you know, climate change, it's, it's real. I mean, you can look at the, the CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. They're rising. I don't think there's um, much doubt that we have an influence on it, but the alarmism to your question, I think, is troubling. I, I you know, I read uh, the L.A. Times every day. Be- I don't like to, but I do it because it's kind of Gavin Newsom's PR mechanism, and I want to read my daily propaganda. And it is, you know, this oil leak happened off the coast of Huntington Beach. The pipeline was ruptured by a boat anchor. And all the calls are to shut down oil production in the state of California. It's like, wait a it minute. It doesn't make like, any sense. Right? Like it's like everything's it's yeah. safer. yeah, how is this making it safe? Like we are, and and, and it, I think it's kind of interesting that all these things are kind of starting to come to a head if they stay in the media spotlight. I think mm-hmm. the shipping backlog is huge. And it's like, wait, if we're so worried about the climate, do you think it's sustainable for half of the country's goods to come through one port in Southern California? And then for that port to have all the diesel trucks come to that port and move that product out to the country. And we don't think there's going to be crazy bad pollution in the LA basin. And so, yeah, I think the alarmism is used to to scare the general public that doesn't read about energy and geek out about these things like we do every day. Cause most people, let's face it, are not reading these things, and like wondering about it. So they just read the headlines. And then when you read the LA times for 10 days straight, it was just five articles every, every time there'd be at least one on the front page. And then a couple buried in the paper about, you know, the, the, 23 the 27 platforms off the coast are ticking time bombs and uh, you know this about oil production and that about and not one mention of the fact that seven of the 10 largest spills that they documented in the la times were tanker accidents first of all in in the the marine world and then second of all 70 percent of our products coming from these tankers so i would think it'd be pretty easy to say okay let's not scare everybody about oil production but let's Kind of raise a red flag about how we're getting our goods and how we're getting our commodities and let's stop freaking people out and start solving the problems. But I don't think there's I don't think there's a will to do that. I think it's just about these politicians staying in office based on what their constituents want to hear. I agree. Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> I can no, get no. off on I can get off
0: <laughs> things like that when we open it up, but <laughs> no, no. It's, it's it's really good. I like it. So in our notes, I mean, I I asked, is there one thing that keeps you up at night? I feel like you've you've outlined that pretty well, but if you can answer that question, it's well, I'll answer it from my perspective, and it's that we are not giving the right, we're not solving the right problem, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like there's. Great evidence throughout the rest of the world about, um, we'll just call them unreliable energy sources Mm. being adopted ad nauseum um, and not, or, you know, prices of electricity then going up and having to utilize more carbon intense fuels to supplement. Um, Do you see that a lot in California? I mean, what's kind of the consensus in San Diego? We can assume, but.
2: About awareness around yeah. sources and yeah, it's like minute. oh
0: man, wind and solar—we're <laughs> going to save the world. Actually, yeah. let's, let's talk about electric cars. You know, so yeah. produce, I mean, produce oil, right? You're making yeah. a yeah. long bet that we're going to be burning oil for a long time. Right, um, right. What do you see? And you know, the California wants to have a bunch of electric electric, char, electric cars.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think so, it's just it's it's nice to think that we're going to transition smoothly to an all electric fleet. But San Diego is a great example. So when I drive around, obviously, Southern California is top in say Southern and I'm sure the Bay Area. But California as a whole, we've got more EVs than any other state. You see a lot of people with Teslas. But what you notice when you're driving around on the street and what I'm noticing is – I see a lot of Teslas in the neighborhood on the surface streets. People going maybe from their house to their job that's 10 minutes away in Sorrento Valley that has a lot of, you know, biotech companies. So you got Mr. Biotech that drives his Tesla to the biotech job and he's doing it right and everything's great. But then when you go down to the beach, let's say, and you park in a state parking lot, All you see is Mercedes Sprinter vans because the same surfers that love the environment want a traveling, you know, surfboard shed. And so they have to drive down there in a Sprinter van or an old RV or an old van that fits their surfboards. And so, number one, you see a lot of people, I think, with all sorts of vehicles so what i like to say is you know people will drive the tesla to their job and the country club for dinner uh, because let's face it not many people can afford a tesla at least not your average person uh, which is not talked about Um, but when i get on the road from san diego to bakersfield then you see You know, the real blue collar people driving to work. And I kid you not, I'll go to Bakersfield and I'll see a small handful of Teslas. They're not traveling long distances. And some of the studies support that, that the average uh, EV owner drives like puts like five to six thousand miles a year on the vehicle. So they're not going very far. And so I think there's kind of a lot of misconception around, one, the idea that they're just going to take over. I think that's a myth. Uh, And then, two, the idea that it's feasible for everybody. I think that's a myth, because I think they're going to be prohibitively expensive for anybody that's not making more than $50,000 a year. But, like,
0: if we want to solve climate change, then we need to stop burning oil and gas, right? Or we need to stop burning gasoline. See, and I, I think... I, I've been thinking about this. I
2: think to a certain degree, that's correct in the United States. But what I don't understand is why don't we say, hey, we're trying to like transition the vehicle fleets in first world and modern societies. Why aren't we going over to sub saharan Africa and China and India and saying, hey, let's get you all off of coal. We'll worry about our fleet later. And, and let's But there's no money in that because then it's like altruism and philanthropy. We're saying, hey, we're going to go improve your air quality and everything. But so I guess. What do you think about that? Do you think say we get 100 percent electric in all of the United States? Everything's electric. Does it matter if if if, if all those other nations haven't changed?
0: Oh, no, absolutely. No, we have one atmosphere. Right. Right. (laughs) we're all emitting into one atmosphere it's one planet yeah that doesn't make sense i think about this on a holistic system level and you know that's why i say nuclear power in my opinion is the only way to solve climate change Mm -hmm. and you have to make it so cheap that it is cheaper than your steam flood it's cheaper than my horizontal shale wells and we can manufacture synthetic fuels out of air and water right stripping Carbon out of the air to recombine into hydrocarbons, or we, you know, use electrolysis or electrolyzers and form hydrogen out of water. Right. And we just use it from the high, high quality excess heat from nuclear power plants. Otherwise, we're going to keep burning fossil fuels all over the world. Yeah. Right. And and I advocate. I think synthetic fuels are a much better solution than electric vehicles because, like, battery technology is not progressing fast enough. Right. We know how to make synthetic fuels it just takes cheaper electricity and more heat right. right you know these these processes exist they do it on aircraft carriers all the time and again from a systems level if you think about the quantity and the value in existing infrastructure for pipelines refilling st- stations you know just the internal combustion engine as it exists now yeah it's not as Fun or cool as electric cars, you know. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of benefit to electric cars from an engineering perspective, but we've invested trillions all over the world to move liquid fuels, and that matters, right? right. If we if we if we try and replace them with batteries, we're going to have to invest in large mining infrastructure, pillage of the earth for all of the ba- all of the mining, and there's not right. a plan to recycle that material right now. You know, right. so, like, I don't. I'm I'm pretty short on the electric car game. Yeah. Um, yeah, Meaning, meaning yeah, precise, I, I think
1: right? there could be a penetration in the electric vehicle market, but I think liquid fuels, including transitional fuels, are going to be around for a long time. I mm. know I will not get on an electric airplane for a very long time.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that, Carolyn. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe never.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, but,
1: But I I do think that Mark's right. There is so much infrastructure around the world to to transport and to use liquid fuels. And and if it's not blended, it's not splendid. Let's uh, (laughs) let's blend it with ethanol or some biofuels and um, hopefully reduce the carbon um, because you're right. Climate change is is a real issue. Um, But let's do it in a, a rational manner.
2: And so isn't the problem that we don't have energy experts making these decisions? I mean, you have people that are like whatever uh, title in Washington, D.C., but does that ever happen? I mean, you can need really smart people like yourselves to make that
0: happen oh in positions God. of, you know, power. Man, I'll give you a, a, t- a horrific example or the, you know, so I'm, I'm like looking at Colorado, for example. Right? We live in Colorado. Yeah. And- Uh, California light. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The
0: the utility here says, all right, we're going to be 80% clean, 80% uh, renewable or clean by 2030. Right. And they want to add gobs of wind, gobs of solar and plenty of natural gas to supplement them. Right. Yeah. And like that's their plan. And I'm like, how is this possible? How is this actually a plan? Like from a technical perspective, this makes zero sense for the consumer. This makes zero sense from a reliability perspective, like the mandate of the utility is like, keep the lights on. Right. right? It's like if you really want to do that, uh, let's go build some nuclear power plants. And again, we're done with it. Right. right. Um, and so you look at, well, what's the utility incentivized by? They're incentivized by spending large amounts of capital because they make a guaranteed return right mm-hmm. the executives get, get bonuses based on how much rent revenue the utility makes yeah and who oversees the utility right it's a regulated monopoly so the public supposedly decides like who makes these rules and who controls these people yeah. there's a panel of three people that are appointed that oversee that are kind of the head decision makers and they're appointed by the governor hmm and the governor is influenced by the public right so if the public uh-huh. thinks that wind solar are the way to go then voila right. suddenly our utility is building wind wind and solar exactly which is a bad solution mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it is I, i'm becoming more vocal about it because it's it's there's just countless examples all over the place which is frustrating right and i say it's a bad solution i think it's the bad holistic solution there are tools yeah, that can't yeah. be used in the right application we install wind and so, i I've installed I've got lots of friends that have solar on their roofs. Uh yeah, I think there's windmills that have a great application. Off the east coast of Aruba, uh, it's full of windmills, wind blows all the time. They've got very dependable power all the time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and reliability aside, let's look at the costs. Um and I think California is a great example of this. On on Sunday it was 3.50 for me to fill my tank in Colorado. Yeah. And it was 4.49 in California.
2: Oh, that's cheap.
1: It's <laughs> like the middle of
2: nowhere, California. I just filled up for four <laughs> four eighty nine, I think, today. That's
1: crazy. Yeah. And, and th- you do that every day to just go normal places. What okay. do you think it takes to have the people of California turn? Is it five dollars a gallon? Is it eight dollars a gallon? Yeah,
2: I think we're gonna see. I think we're gonna see six soon. Um, and I think things are going to get real. But now, so we had the recall of, you know, vote for Governor Newsom and he won by the same margin that he won the first go round. So now he's emboldened. So I don't know that I think he kind of gets the advantage of letting all the negativity around inflation and price increases fall on D.C. and the Biden administration right now. So he kind of has just been, you know, same old, same old regulate. You know, we just banned gas-powered uh, lawnmowers and weed whackers here like i don't you know nothing's <laughs> changing from the, you know the politicians here in California but i do i've i've long said i feel like we're going to have a boomerang where it's going to get so expensive and so bad that they finally get thrown out of power and it flips back to we need to produce this and we need to make it here um, but i think it's a the biggest travesty is a lot of these policies are being implemented in the name of environmental justice—that we need to clean the air in South Central LA uh, for the Black and Brown communities—and the only way to do that is to stop oil production because, you know, oil production is responsible for less than four percent of California's state emissions. But if we get that out of there, then we help the, you know, the the disadvantaged communities, which, by the way, are suffocating under the port emissions from the ships and the crew tankers and the stuff that we don't want to talk about So I, I think I would, one of the things that I want to do is go into those communities, but it's very hard to get, I guess, an audience and an access. I don't know how to do that. You know, I could do it through maybe the, the state uh, representatives in those places, but they're far left. So they're not going to invite someone like me in to kind of share why they're, utility bills are forty percent higher and they're paying, you know, four eighty at the pump for gasoline. Um, well, but there, at some
0: point that's any gonna happen. San Diego that you can just go get beers with?
2: Yeah. Well exactly. <laughs> Say no. But I'm, yeah, this is the last question. I, I've been trying. So there's um, Michelle Steele is a state representative in Seal Beach up north a little bit and she came out after this spill and said, Hey, I'm gonna introduce legislation that says you can't Park these cargo ships in our port or in around our port, you know, while they wait to offload on this supply chain crisis. And that's, I think, a step in the right direction. I think we need to take it a step further to find people in the state house that will support things like, hey, we need to shed light on these tankers and we need to shed light on the emissions leakage in these other countries. And the fact that, you know, industry here is really not the source of pollution that's giving disadvantaged communities you know, asthma and lung cancer. It's actually the pollution from industry and shipping. And so I think, I don't know though, I'm not that optimistic that the, that the, uh, the facts get distributed to the vulnerable populations that need the facts. And it's just kind of hidden Mm -hmm. from them. And I
0: I have perhaps a recommendation for how we might be able to help. And we might, you might start, um, you know young professionals in energy is a nationwide organization actually global organization we, we interface with folks from all over the place and there's chapters in la there's a chapter in the bay area and I, I imagine you know they do events they do webinars they when they're in person many of them do lunch and learns and i think your perspective would be uh probably challenged but also interesting for probably a lot of them so we'd be happy to facilitate an intro and um try and put you in touch with them and and that could be a place to start um but then, yeah, I think your your thought process around getting getting in front of the right people and the influencers and politicians that that w- will make a difference and need to hear the different perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, you're well, you're an oil man, and actually, it's funny looking at your picture on the website. I was like, man, this guy like kind of looks like Daniel Day Lewis, and there there will be blood. Like <laughs> <laughs>
2: someone else will." <told> be that. <laughs> <laughs> so what else uh, I'm an oil way. man <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. you I
0: mean you're doing it from for right you want to make money you want to help your state you want to help your fellow citizens you we recognize the problem of climate change and we're not going to solve that overnight, but you have a solution to to help people act- actively and that will make a big difference for them
2: yeah, yeah, I would love to do that I would love to talk i I like talking to anybody and Finding solutions and, um, you know, finding middle ground, which doesn't seem to exist
0: anymore. But I'm going to find that
2: middle ground.
0: You might find the the most different people in the San Francisco chapter from uh, yourself. So we we might start there.
2: I I would love to. I'll fly up there. I'd love to meet them.
0: Um, (laughs) Awesome. Well, thinking about the future, uh, you know, you've got this wonderful breadth of experience where you've had to be an entrepreneur. Uh, whether you wanted to or not, that you've you've transformed into that, and I love that. Um, yeah. What advice do you have for other young professionals or old professionals in the energy industry that are looking to emulate your your career path?
2: Gosh, um, that's a hard question because I never feel qualified to give like ah. advice.
0: But <laughs> I would say I'll have it. It's all.
2: Good. What, what what just what makes me sad? It doesn't discourage me. It makes me sad to see people that give up on the industry. I feel like. The, the biggest thing for me and it's hard to do some days you wake up and you're like man if I just grew marijuana inside I would have a much easier time making money because it's easy to do that in California but if all of us just stay focused on we're trying to produce energy in the most sustainable responsible way possible and don't give up. I think it's easy for me to say that because I am, I'm more entrepreneurial. I I like that risk. I like feeling uncomfortable. So, and I'm stubborn, so I'm just going to keep doing it until it works. (laughs) But I, I hope that more people would adopt that because you do see and you feel for people some people can't help it if they lose their job from an oil downturn what are they going to do they got to feed their family but there's a lot of smart people that i've even seen leaving and like taking jobs at. and maybe that's what they want to do if it's their passion and they want to leave the industry go for it but if you for me it is like it is in my blood i feel it you know it is you know I'm going to drink your milkshake, but (laughs) it's like, you gotta, you know, you gotta have that passion to be in anything you do. So I think that's, I think that's the only thing that I would really, the mantra is just be passionate, learn more, talk about it more meet more people, do things that make you uncomfortable, go go into situations and meetings that make you uncomfortable because that's really how you grow is just to be be uncomfortable to the point where you have to speak about your position and have facts to back it up and not emotions to back it up. So yeah. I guess that'd be my advice.
1: Well, that's great advice. What did I you actually just tell I me? Uh, I joined the industry um <laughs> because I thought that the people in it were so they just had something that they, some drive that they wanted to do, and they had the most fun,
2: which is important. Absolutely, it's a fun industry. I mean, I'm sitting here. I I prepared my little ranch water before we got on, and now <laughs> I'm on to my IPA secretly. <laughs> but now, now it's out there since we're not on
0: video. <laughs> I saw you take a couple sips earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. yeah.
0: you got to have fun, right? Absolutely. Exactly. Well let's, let's end in, on an optimistic note. Where where do you see all this going? I mean, if you could build a perfect world, if California transformed overnight and the energy industry uh, from your side will say had its way, what what yeah. would happen?
2: Um, if the industry had its way, I would I would bring certainty to the regulatory climate. I would bring a clear set of rules that are a long-term set of rules looking out 30 years towards a potential transition. I would include all stakeholders, the activists on the environmental side, the policymakers, the industry folks, um, and come together and iron out those innovations and incorporate the innovations that, like solar, in your field, like taking produced water and using it for agriculture, like um, capturing our flue gas and injecting it downhole to enhance oil recovery or to sequester carbon. I would find a way to truly make a transition happen, rather than a command and control you know, stop one thing, start this other thing, because I think we all can see the writing on the wall with these energy shortages and inflation happening that it's, it's clearly not going to work. And the sooner we can all, you know, sit at the table and coordinate these things together. And maybe you end up saying, Hey, I don't like that, but it's, my position is not to shut you down. My position is to say, okay, you go do that and I'm going to do what I do responsibly. Um, And we can all just kind of coexist. And then beyond that, I guess we need to retreat from the coastlines and build stronger <laughs> air conditioning <laughs> units and start battening down the hatches because I think we would we would be better served preparing, buying our backup generators and preparing for the apocalypse than we will be like arguing about when it's gonna come. <laughs>
0: uh, that's great. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Really, really appreciate having you on.
2: Yeah, that's fun. I love it. Let's do it again in person in Denver or wherever.